From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zuma Radio, AM 740. Good to have you aboard. Have a very interesting hour ahead of us for you. It's been a while since I've had this gentleman on. The last time he was with us, we were talking about how the fix is in in professional sports, but he's back with a, a brand new investigative uh, a piece some three years in the making uncovered some very very interesting official government documents it's all about the continuity of government and martial law and we'll get to that discussion in just a moment i'm about to tell you something and i and i, I forgive me i'm i have to be vague for now but i will get into this i i have tweeted about this for those of you who uh follow me on twitter uh at richard Serrett, the mighty aphrodite of course my bride is going through a very difficult time right now, and as a result, well, the whole family is. She has specifically been uh, targeted for an, an attack, really. I don't know how else to describe it. Unwarranted, unfounded, and it demonstrates the abuse of power. When someone in a position of power abuses that power, she's been on the receiving end of, of several poisonous emails and a harassing phone call, a threatening phone call, in which the individual whose name will become known over the uh, the next uh, days and weeks, because we are taking this to the media, this individual uh, threatened to basically sick Revenue Canada on her. The reason why is still remains a complete mystery, I guess because this individual feels he has the power to do so. I will tell you that he this individual is a federal politician in the greater Toronto area, and the mighty Aphrodite, for the last several days, has not been able to sleep. She's physically ill over this, and we are taking the story to the media. And if you want to know more, you can check out my Twitter, Richard Serrett. There's a few references there. That's all I'm going to say now. I will keep you posted. But we just feel, I don't know, uh, some people have suggested that perhaps we are being, uh, we're under some sort of spiritual attack. I don't know what to tell you. It's all very puzzling and very disturbing, but... Um, uh, we're not going to take it uh, lying down, that's for sure. We will we will exhaust every avenue to make sure this person is held to account for this irresponsible behavior and abuse of power. It cannot be allowed to stand because if it can happen to us, it can happen to anyone. Imagine having uh, you know, Revenue Canada on your back for absolutely no reason, even if you have absolutely nothing to hide, which, of course, she does not. The fact is it's it's hanging over her head like, you know, the sword of Damocles. And it's very easy for this person to make a call and, and uh, say, why don't you investigate them to Revenue Canada? And then when he's asked to explain, he says, well, if they investigate and they find nothing, oh, well, I suppose I could apologize. Not good enough. All right, enough said. But there will be more details forthcoming, I promise you. I mentioned Brian Tui, who was last on this program talking about the corruption in professional sports. And I remember at the time, it just caused a, a real firestorm when that book came out, and uh, I, I received tons of emails. And Brian promised that he would be back with a brand new book, and here we are three years later. This time, he's discussing the continuity of government and how it could affect you. Disaster Government, National Emergencies, Continuity of Government, and You is the name of the book. Brian Tui is the author. As I say, he was best known as the author of The Fix is In, The Showbiz Manipulation of the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NHL, and NASCAR, which was published by Feral House. This guy takes no prisoners, and it's a pleasure to have Brian back on The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Fine. How are you doing this evening, Richard? It's good to have you here. Thank you. First of all, a little primer. What does continuity of government mean? We've heard that term, but many people aren't familiar with what it actually means. Continuity of government is 
in essence, the plans the government has created in order to save itself, to preserve the operation of the federal government. And the idea being that if you save the federal government from whatever may be a natural disaster, a nuclear war, worst-case scenario type of stuff, that if you save the federal government, them being protected will in turn preserve the United States and then help all of the citizens survive whatever disaster is at hand. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. It's logical. Uh, we in Canada, during the Cold War, the federal government, they built a bunch of nuclear bunkers across the country. They were nicknamed Diefen Bunkers at the time. The prime minister was John Diefen Baker. I think England, of course, was one of the first. They did this during the uh, the Blitz, during the Second World War, to counter the threat of the Luftwaffe bombing the government. So these are things that governments should do, if I suppose, if they're carried out responsibly, right? Would you agree? Oh, exactly. I mean, it, it's common sense. I mean, like you said, I mean, everybody should have a disaster plan. I mean, you should have an emergency plan for your own home. If you own a business, you should have an emergency plan for that. And, you know, a logical step is, you know, the government should have such a plan as well. I think where the problem lies and where the conspiracy theories start and where people start, you know, losing it over the subject matter is I think the nature of continuity government is intended in the United States to preserve the constitutional form of government, like the pure government that we all, I think, as Americans want to believe in. But the problem is, as you see how our government operates today, and you think, well, continuity government is going to save those crazy people. <laughs> right. Not is right. this something we want to preserve? Exactly. Well, the yeah. continuity of operations plan, the one that exists now, as I understand it, this was activated in the U.S. following the September 11th attacks. Well, to a certain extent it was. And I put that in the book is kind of what was revealed during that day. The scary part is this has been basically ongoing since after World War II, and America did seem to get the idea, of, like you said, from the British, and it really ramped up during the Cold War. And they spent, you know, billions upon billions of dollars, you know, creating these underground relocation sites, and making these, you know, plans. And then 9-11 happened. And one of my favorite stories is when 9-11 was ongoing, Laura Bush's chief of staff organized everyone working in the White House and despite all these plans and everything, literally told the White House staff, run for your lives. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we spent all this money. and Run is, for your lives. The answer is run for your lives. Well, there is money well spent. Exactly. What led you to, to begin this three-year investigation? What was the red flag for you? There wasn't really a red flag. It kind of, you know, because I do this research on sports, and I haven't stopped doing that. I have another sports book coming out about game fixing and sports gambling later this year, actually. But I kind of could only handle so much sports. <laughs> and what happened was is I was always interested in this kind of continuity government Stuff. And I was interested kind of from that conspiracy theory angle, and I said, all right, I'm going to look into this kind of as a side project, something to take my mind off of sports, and so I could talk about something else besides sports. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized that it wasn't crazy. The stuff was actually true, and then once I started getting the actual documents from the FBI and some of these other places, stuff that was once top secret, and saw really what was going on, I was like, okay, I have to do something with this information and I have to put it out there because I can't find a book about this information as thorough as what I hope disaster government is for readers. You know, Brian, you can't do a, a conspiracy program like I have, I guess going on 13 years, without hearing these stories about 
FEMA camps, basically these holding centers that are being prepared for U.S. dissidents in case of some sort of civil unrest or economic meltdown. The U.S. ordering tens of thousands of coffins in case of some, again, national emergency, civil unrest. Were you uncovering evidence of these sorts of things? To a certain extent. The FEMA camp thing, it's kind of almost like continuity of government. It it makes sense on one level, and on another level it doesn't. I mean, if you read the actual bill, the idea was pretty sound. I mean, when we saw what happened with Hurricane Katrina and how it displaced literally a million or more people in the Gulf Coast, they had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to stay, you know, with all the damage that was done. And, you know, so the government's response, FEMA's response was so haphazard. They were giving them gift cards and putting them into you know, trailers that wound up having formaldehyde levels that were like five times the legal limit, or they were putting people in hotels. Somebody said, okay, well, maybe we should make some sort of kind of like hotels for these people to go to when a disaster like this happens. And to a certain extent, that makes sense. But then the vagueness of the bill that was proposed and the vagueness in a lot of this stuff allows for other things to be possible. And that's where the conspiracy thing comes in, because they're not defined clearly, you could say, well, if you wanted to round up dissenters. And part of the thing I do talk about in the book is the fact is there is such a program in place to round up dissenters, and it's been one for many years. Then you start putting two and two together and wondering, well, what's really going on? Brian Tui is with us, the author of Disaster Government, National Emergencies, Continuity of Government, and You. One of the things you talk about is in the event of nuclear war, or some other national emergency, but it doesn't necessarily need to be anything so catastrophic because, again, these plans are so vague, and the power rests in the executive branch. Is that correct? Totally, and that's the troublesome thing is Congress has basically given all this power to the president, and the funny part is there's a lot of it's they refer to it in the documents as saying they want to preserve enduring constitutional freedom, but the fact is the irony is is that to do that, they're giving all the power to the president, which is completely unconstitutional. Right. So he or she, depending on who is in the White House, they would basically rule by edict, uh, like yeah. a Caesar. Exactly. Now, the vagueness, again, going back to what kind of a national emergency, you're saying the vagueness of this continuity plan wouldn't necessarily require a true national emergency. Give me some examples, some some of the things that could happen that could be interpreted by the wrong president, as you point out, that could basically kickstart this continuity program. Well, the problem is no one's defined what national emergency means, what one is. And you'd be hard-pressed if you ask people. I mean, right now, the United States of America is under 25 separate ongoing national emergencies. And you'd be hard-pressed, I think, as an American citizen to name one. Because you would think of something with the title of a national emergency, you know, emergency means obviously something that's happening right now, and it's troublesome. <laughs> and, you know, national is nationwide, yet you can't name one of these national emergencies, and we're under 25 of them. That's what really kind of tripped me further going down this. Well, let's, let's talk about that. When book. we come back, uh, Brian, let's talk about some of these national emergencies that residents of the United States are already living under and may not be aware and what sort of event might trigger essentially martial law, a president announcing a series of measures by edict, by decree that would end up, you know, suspending civil liberties and, and subjecting people to uh, 
who knows, internment in one of these FEMA camps and, and what else this might imply. Brian Tui, again, author of Disaster Government, National Emergencies, Continuity of Government, and you, phone lines available to you here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Brian Tui is with us, the author of Disaster Government, National Emergencies, Continuity of Government, and you. And I, I suppose, on the one hand, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that resting with the executive branch of the federal government in the United States is the authority to essentially suspend the Constitution and suspend civil liberties in the case of some national emergency, given that we now have an executive branch with the authority to assassinate U.S. citizens there is an area that's so vague that some have interpreted it, it to uh, mean that even on U.S. soil, the president could order the assassination of basically anyone he decides to, anyone that he considers to be a terrorist. We shouldn't then be surprised that these sorts of things are, are going on. Now, Brian, you mentioned before the break that the U.S. is currently living under 25 national emergencies. Can you expound on that a little bit? Well, no one ever defined what a national emergency was. The closest that any president came was with Ronald Reagan. And during his administration, a lot of times they would call it a national security emergency. And that made a big difference because basically what it was then was anything that threatened national security, therefore, could basically be deemed an emergency and then the government could react to it as it deemed necessary. But that got eliminated after the Reagan years and it just became a national emergency again. And what's a national emergency today is nothing what I think people would think of. I mean, Hurricane Katrina was not a national emergency. The Superstorm or Hurricane Sandy, however you want to call it, was not a national emergency. But yet the conditions in Zimbabwe or the conditions in Burma or the conditions in Colombia, these are all national emergencies right now. 9-11, which basically, as far as I was concerned, ended that day, is still a national emergency today. How would the situation in, in Burma or Zimbabwe... Uh, well, how is it a national con- emergency, right? Yes, constitute a national emergency. Well, you should ask President Obama, because I can't figure it out myself. I think what it is, is the Korean War was a national emergency. Not the war itself, but the situation in Korea, which led to the war, was a national emergency. I think what it is, is today is it's the same kind of thing. Making Iran a national emergency allows the government, if it wants to, basically send in the troops and, you know, send in the drones and all that sort of thing, and because it threatens potentially our national security. And I think that's what it all boils down to now, is it's basically almost like a pretense to war. Could the president, under the Continuity of Government Act, or plan, essentially dissolve the House of Representatives, the Congress, call off elections, suspend elections? In a very real way, basically everything is set up for a legal coup. A legal coup? The government. It's like all the dominoes are set up. It's just a matter of tipping them over. Now, 
the problem would be, for example, with Obama, it'd be really hard, I think, to start those dominoes falling with the conditions in Zimbabwe as your excuse. <laughs> you know, you'd have to have people line up on your side, and I think you'd have a hard time selling that one. But given something else, given another 9-11 type of circumstance, well, then things could completely change. But, I mean, we are sort of seeing this process unfolding in slow motion. One could call it a coup d'etat in slow motion. We, I mean, they've essentially suspended habeas corpus. I mentioned the president having the authority to assassinate U.S. citizens. So there goes, I believe that's the fifth, is that the Fifth Amendment or the Fourth Amendment? Sorry, the Fourth Amendment. Yep. Uh, we've got due process out the window. Illegal search and seizure. Uh, we had, up until recently, I believe, FBI agents could write their own warrants, enter into somebody's house, and if the person under investigation spoke to anybody about it, they could be thrown in jail. I mean, it sounds like it's already happening. Yeah, it's a little frightening. <laughs> I admit, yeah, it's uh, being Americans, it doesn't make you feel too good. One of the things I dug up with this book was there used to be an emergency detention act and an emergency detention plan. And this dated back to the 60s. And I got the FBI files that proved this is not a make-believe thing. It's real. And what the FBI had an issue with was not the fact that there was basically 100,000 Americans back in the 60s under the government's constant surveillance and that given a national emergency, the FBI was tasked with rounding up about 15,000 of those people and arresting them no matter what they were doing, if they were breaking the law or not or just sitting in their house. They were basically deemed dissenters and potential troublemakers and needed to be arrested. The FBI's problem with the whole thing wasn't that this existed, but how they were going to actually round up 15,000 people at the drop of a hat. That was their concern. None of the other stuff was a concern. That was the concern, is right. how are we going to do this? Right. And that's increased. I mean, now we have, you know, things like the no-fly list, and I think it's, what is it, the TIDE program that monitors some, like, one and a half million Americans and there's maybe even a bigger database called MainCore that potentially monitors 8 million Americans who are deemed potential terrorists and, again, given the right set of circumstances, could be rounded up at the drop of a hat. And, and if you listen to, uh, I believe, uh, it was a uh, an official with Homeland Security um, whose name escapes me, it'll come to me, but she talked about, uh, I mean, the list could include, for example, people who talk about owning gold, not owning fiat currency, but forget about storing U.S. dollars, buy gold. That person could be considered a terrorist. Someone who voted for Ron Paul could be declared a terrorist. Someone who is very pro-life or pro-gun, whether or not you agree or disagree with that person, they could be considered a terrorist. So does this list still exist, and is it possible, for example, to find out if you're on this list? As far as I know, it does still exist. In fact, you and I are probably on it. <laughs> of that, I have no doubt. <laughs> But to access it, I, I don't think anybody on the outside has a chance to do that because I, it can't, it's one of those things that can be like neither confirmed nor denied, and that's the way they want it. And, and that's the problem with a lot of these programs I talk about in the book. You know, you talk about the vagueness of it all. Back when continuity government and, you know, the idea of surviving a nuclear war started and really took a foothold was back in the Kennedy administration, and he issued like 19 executive orders directed at all the department heads, basically, and told them to get basically get ready for nuclear war and how to respond to it and, you know, look into how to claim certain things, how to stockpile certain things, how to ration certain things, 
And he was very specific in his orders. And since then, Nixon rewrote it, Reagan rewrote it, and then Obama rewrote it, the same basic plan. But as each successive president rewrote it, it got more and more vague and just kind of more generalized, which gave, obviously, the people in charge way more leeway to do what they think was necessary. And that's where it gets kind of, again, scary. Uh, People have a short memory, but this past summer, of course, was a horrible drought in the breadbasket of America, and, and subsequently, you know, uh, there were uh, corn shortages and so forth. So, And we're not going to see that uh, really reflected until this coming, uh, this coming spring, summer. Food prices are uh, expected to, to skyrocket in some areas, and people are already starting to see some hints of that. Um, what happens in the case of, uh, of, of food shortages under this continuity of government uh, a, a plan. Uh, talk to me about, you know, their, their their plan for food rationing and that sort of thing. Well, again, it's all kind of vague now. Now, see, something like that, like the drought, for example, wasn't a national emergency. Again, that was like no concern, even though, again, it's going to affect probably everybody in the country way more than the conditions in, you know, Belarus are going to affect everyone in the country. But that's not considered a national emergency, but Belarus is. But within these continuity government programs, if president deems it so they can ration they can do a lot of things i mean they can ration food water energy they can basically confiscate your car and personal vehicle given the right set of the circumstances they can take over the airwaves they can take over your own electromagnetic device be it a computer ipod television what have you it can it even goes down to, to the fact that they can literally tell americans where to work what they're going to work on and how much they're going to get paid to do it if push comes to shove. People might be sitting back and saying, okay, well, that's, uh, that's all fine and dandy. It's, it's not, I mean, that's a safe, uh, you know, sort of the last line of defense. That's not likely to happen unless, of course, there was something like nuclear war. Uh, why, why should we be concerned about it then? I mean, are you concerned that we're close? It's imminent? that something like martial law is going to be declared? Or, I mean, what what are you afraid of? I'm not afraid of anything. I'm at a point where I, I don't really care anymore, <laughs> unfortunately. I'm old enough for it. I'm like, eh, whatever. But I think it's a very real possibility, and I think people should be concerned about it, especially if they're concerned about the United States and the true constitutional government and how this country is supposed to run. You should be very concerned about these plans. Because, again, they've put literally billions of dollars into them they've planned them they've tested them and they are willing to implement them given the right set of circumstances and we've seen these circumstances crop up here and there i mean people don't think like martial law is possible and to a certain extent i don't think it could be instituted from coast to coast you couldn't control everyone with the government or with the military by any means but you could control the city and there's been situations where, you know, there's been basically what they call civil disobedience. We saw that a lot in the 1960s and even in the um, with the Rodney King riots were literal, you know, step-by-step procedures that are supposed to be put in place before they send in the troops were met. The president issued a warning in the case of the Rodney King riots that said, if you guys don't disperse, we're sending in the troops. They didn't disperse. They sent in the military and then put, you know, Los Angeles basically under martial law for three days to control it all. So, I mean, everything's in place to do it. They just need the right, you know, kickstart, and they will do these things. Now, 
there supposedly is a uh, you know a law that prevents. I mean, the U.S. military is never supposed to be used against U.S. citizens, uh, posse comitatus. Has that, as far as you can tell, pretty much been suspended or 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 thrown under the bus? This this concept that have they cleared the way, in other words, for the U.S. military for U.S. troops to be used against U.S. citizens? Yes and no. There are exceptions to the posse comitatus, and people have to remember it's not a thing that was given under the Constitution. It was a law passed by Congress, and I think it was 1878 after a civil war. And there are exceptions. The like uh, Coast Guard doesn't operate under posse comitatus. National Guard does not. They're allowed to police. Um, there's also rules for like fighting on the war on drugs. The Navy and the Air Force are allowed to stop smugglers from trying to breach or get out of our borders. So, I mean, there are ways around it. The big thing, going back to the Rodney King riots, was the main example is the government is allowed to send in the military troops given what they, again, called basic civil disobedience. And the only way the president can do that, however, they have to meet certain um, regulations, basically, step-by-step thing, and that all falls under the Insurrection Act of 1807. And that basically says if the president wants to send in the troops, he has to issue an order that says, you people have to cease and desist whatever you're doing, and if they don't cease and desist, then he's allowed to issue an edict that will send the troops in to establish martial law. Do you see a connection um, between these uh, the federal government attempting to pass uh, additional gun control laws, banning assault weapons in some jurisdictions, some states? We saw recently the uh, state of Washington of banning assault-type uh, weapons, although there is, that's not a technical term. There is no real, there's no such thing, really, as an assault weapon. It's whatever someone decides looks like an assault weapon. But what, do you think there's a connection uh, between these uh, gun anti-gun regulations or, or gun control regulations and this continuity of government plan? In other words, in order to, uh, in order to, make sure the, gov- the, the, the citizenry do not rebel, you've got to first disarm them. I mean, is that part of the continuity plan? It's interesting, and I only thought about this after the book was actually released, which is just about a month ago. You know, I never saw a single document, even with the Emergency Detention Act and all these other things that I found in doing this research, that ever mentioned taking guns away or any sort of gun control in any one of these documents. Um, Now, maybe that was just, you know, assumed. I don't know. But, you know, how they kind of defined everything else to a T at certain times, you would think somewhere along the line somebody said, oh, by the way, we have to go get everybody's guns if we're going to do any of this. But at the same time, you know, the roundup of guns, in my opinion, doesn't make sense unless they do want to basically stop our ability to revolt against what, our own government. All right. With that crashing note, we'll take a time out and uh, come back with Brian Tui, author of Disaster Government, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
There is no loyalty except loyalty to loyalty. There is no love except love of people. All competing pleasures we will destroy. If you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. can't remember the movie that's, that the line from, is from. If you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stomping on your face forever. That's, uh, thank you, uh, Dan, in the other room, 1984. Hey, uh, Dan Ellison, my old technical producer, is back on the board uh, for one night only. <laughs> Uh, Dan was my uh, very first uh, technical op here at uh, AM740, the flagship station uh, here in Toronto. And uh, then uh, after a couple of years, I guess, uh, of hearing the truth, it drove him to distraction and he had to get out and find himself and left the show and uh, traveled to PEI and then across the country and uh, has just uh, joined, uh, joined us here on the show while uh, our regular producer, Tim, is taking so much needed time off. You can only do this show for so long, and then it gets to you, <laughs> I tell you. Uh, anyway, uh, welcome, Dan. Good to have you aboard. Uh, Brian Tui is also with us, uh, the author of Disaster Government, National Emergencies, Continuity of Government, and You. Let me just crib here uh, from the back cover, because this really says it all. Uh, let me just, oh, wait, wait. There's the book. Okay. Do you have a plan in the event of an emergency? The federal government does. Only its continuity of government operations during a national emergency involve rationing food, water, and energy, confiscating your personal vehicle, controlling the media, and telling you where to work and for what wage, while our leaders in the United States sit safely ensconced within bases buried deep underground. Sound like a conspiracy theory? Unfortunately, these are the facts as as revealed by the government's own top-secret files within the pages of disaster government. Now, Brian, what did you uncover in terms of where these underground bunkers and so forth would be? Uh, you know, what kind of, a, of facilities are being made available uh, to members of the executive branch and their family? Are they already in place? Do they know, do we know where they are? Yes and no. <laughs> it's, it's kind of one of the funny, ironic parts of this is there's two main underground bases that are known that are huge supposedly one's mount weather and the other one's known as raven rock or site r and raven rock is basically the alternate site for the pentagon and that's about six miles from camp david and allegedly there's a tunnel that connects camp david to raven rock so if the president was at camp david he could be whisked underground to raven rock to be safe and the other one is mount weather which um is basically the alternate site for congress to go to now, the problem is, is obviously these both places are known. I know about them. Other people know about them. Therefore, our enemies know about them, which makes them basically, you know, irrelevant, which means there has to be an alternate site somewhere for the alternate sites. And where those are and how much money was spent to build them and how elaborate and big they are, who knows? But they've got to be out there because you can't rely on the known knowns to protect you in the event of emergency. Is there a, a budget uh, for the continuity uh, of government plans? For example, would you, would you be able to ascertain how much money is being funneled into the construction of these huge underground bunkers? Uh, uh, or is this part of the uh, the black ops program? 
oh, this is completely black ops. This is off the table. This is top secret type stuff. I mean, one of the known um, ones you can actually visit an underground site is at the Greenbrier Hotel, which I believe is in West Virginia. And the federal government actually funded the Greenbrier to build an extra wing onto the hotel so at the same time they could build this underground uh, base. And that was supposed to be one of the original relocation sites for members of Congress. And now people can go visit it because it got outed by, uh, I think it was Ted Gupp of the Washington Post. I think he was the one who outed it in the 1990s, so they had to build another one somewhere. Um, but the funny thing is, is the Government Accountability Office did a study and asked members of Congress, you know, basically he said, in a nuclear war, the bombs are coming, we're going to relocate you to one of these underground facilities, will you go? And a vast number of congressmen said they wouldn't because they couldn't bring their families along. I mean, there's basically just enough space for the members of Congress and some staff, and that's it. And a lot of the people said they wouldn't even go and fulfill their posts, which, again, makes you wonder, well, is all this necessary? Is it worth spending these billions of dollars upon or what? So while the, the U.S. members of the U.S. government are, are, as you say, safely ensconced within these bases buried deep underground, uh, let's say in the event of nuclear war. Now, you know, at, during the, the Cold War, there was something called the civil defense. Uh, and, and I know in Russia, for example, uh, they prepared, uh, in the event of a nuclear attack from the United States, they built, you know, miles and miles of underground, uh, shelters for their people. The United States did not. I mean, if you wanted to go out and build your own bomb shelter in your backyard, that was up to you. But there was, there was, there was nothing provided for the American citizens uh, because I guess they felt that the whole idea of mutual assured destruction was if your citizenry on both sides are vulnerable, then neither side will attack. But I just I, I, this is kind of similar where the, the U.S. government, they're providing for themselves. They're going to make sure they're safe and sound. And the rest of us, well, you're on your own, folks. Well, that's not entirely true, though. I mean, the U.S. government did actually fund a lot of um, basically fallout shelters in public buildings in a lot of the major cities, and they did um, stock those very well. I mean, in fact, I think, I forget the exact numbers, but they had, I think, enough food and water and uh, fallout shelter space for, gosh, I want to say at least 70 or 80 million people. They did, but no more, right? No, I mean, it wasn't for everybody, and... um, the thing was, yeah, they did basically tell people, if you want to survive, go build your own shelter, and here's the plans how to do it, and good luck with that. But, <laughs> you know, they they did provide something. The problem was is that, obviously, after a while, it you know, the stocks only lasted so long, the food spoiled, the water spoiled, and everything just kind of went to pot. But they did even create, you know, evacuation routes. And, some, like I say, some of the continuity government planning actually is beneficial, the, like evacuation routes that they designed for surviving a nuclear war to get people out of cities are still being used today for, like, hurricane evacuations. All right, Brian, let me uh, jump in here. We'll take another time out. Back on the other side, disaster government, national emergencies, continuity of government, and you, Brian Tui, here on The Conspiracy Show. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, Brian Tui stays with us. 
for a few moments yet as the conspiracy show winds down for another week. You know, uh, March uh, 1st, coming up very quickly, uh, we have the um, Congress voting on uh, or, or negotiating on uh, this, you know, how to avoid the sequestration, this uh, sequestration, a series of automatic uh, budget cuts in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, this constant haranguing about, you know, uh, voting on raising the debt ceiling and so forth. I seem to recall that uh, back in uh, 2008, when the whole crash sort of started, uh, and um, President Obama, newly minted uh, President Obama, I guess this was in 2009, uh, asking Congress to approve this major, major uh, uh, bailout. Uh, they called it a stimulus package. Most of the money went to the banks. And some of the, there was a there was a congressman, if memory serves, who came out and said that he was threatened if he didn't vote for it that there would be martial law declared in the United States. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do recall that. And here we are again. Uh, I'm wondering, with the uh, the U.S. some say on the verge of you know economic collapse and going into default and so forth, and this. These these automatic budget cuts, some say, could send the U.S. tail you know tail spinning back into a maybe even a depression. Um, could this be sort of the linchpin that could lead to something like martial law? Let's say the uh, you know the Congress, the, the the Democrats, Republicans can't get together. They uh, they they can't come into an agreement, and these automatic budget cuts come in. And send the U.S. sends the U.S. into another major recession. Could something like that be the linchpin for this martial law to be called? I think it would be a very good tipping point. I mean, a very good starting, you know, to get that snowball going. Because if that did occur, then I think you would see, you know, the type of civil unrest that you know people get angry, mobs form, that sort of thing. It could be looked at as a potential revolution, and that kicks in the Insurrection Act, and then they can send in the troops. Because, I mean, it makes you wonder, as an American, like for myself, which I didn't realize, is, you know, never before in America's history did we have a standing army meant to basically patrol the United States, but we have that now in U.S. NORTHCOM, which is based in Colorado, which is, of course, basically the center of the United States. And given the right set of circumstances, there's upwards of perhaps as many as 20,000 troops stationed for U.S. NORTHCOM, which means, you know, if New York City goes up on a riot or some sort of other, you know, perceived threat, then we could send the troops in to quell it. And then that's, again, that's just more of the snowball. It just keeps going from there, which is a kind of a scary situation. And you're right, given just a couple of weeks from now, that could happen. Well, given that uh, many of the U.S. forces, of course, are overseas, the U.S. has, you know, I believe over 100 um, uh, bases uh, in places like Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, in uh, the Great Horn of Africa, you name it. Uh, that they wouldn't have enough troops here. And some people have, have noted these rather interesting military exercises where you have Russian soldiers over on a U.S. soil conducting military exercises. Is that part of the plan? Uh, maybe even another way of skirting around, uh, posse comitatus to use foreign troops against U.S. citizens? I never found anything in the documentation that noted as such, but I think it's a very real possibility because one of the arguments that a lot of people have was that there would be no way that, you know, 
a U.S. soldier would fire upon a U.S. citizen, although even the Army studied this and found that actually there are a lot of number of U.S. soldiers who would fire upon U.S. citizens given the GO code. But, um, yeah, exactly, if you bring in U.N. troops or NATO forces or something like that, like our troops have been used in other countries, why can't that happen to us? Just because we assume it can't doesn't mean it won't. This is a, a total nightmare scenario, and uh, the way I see it happening, I'm, it's just it's the old uh, proverbial, you know, frog that's placed in a pot of cold water, and you slowly turn up the heat, and the frog doesn't even realize it, but uh, he just notices the warm getting the water getting warmer and warmer, and before the frog knows it, he's basically been poached. Um, so, I mean, are these things in your mind are they happening? slowly, surreptitiously behind the scenes. I mean, we mentioned the suspension of habeas corpus. I mean, that's one of the first things that happen, happens under a declaration of martial law. Um, but it's already essentially happened under the Patriot Act. Uh, so, I mean, how do you seeing this, this breaking out? Is it just gradually, incrementally, or is it going to happen basically overnight? The president comes on and says, I'm declaring a national state of emergency and uh, we're suspending the Constitution. Well, I hope neither one transpires. <laughs> obviously, but yeah, <laughs> but, obviously. But it, I think I think a more effective way of doing it is the slow play. I think that because, you know, more people just kind of get distracted and lose interest and they don't realize what's going on. And I mean, I think that's one of the things I try to show in the book that there's a lot of things that are going on. Like, for example, we're under 25 national emergencies and we don't know it. I mean, that's something that people should be aware of, and you should realize what the government can do if such a situation is occurring, and it is ongoing right now. I think if you did it, like you said, all overnight where, you know, bam, boom, you know, this happens and this happens, and we declare martial law and, you know, U.N. troops are here, uh, then you get into just exactly like a nightmare scenario, and I don't think that benefits the powers that be. It doesn't benefit the American citizens. It doesn't help anybody. I think the slow play is would be the smarter play if that's where you're going to do it, but... When you got everything lined up, like I point out in the book, you have it all lined up. All you need is that one moment to start the dominoes falling. And is is there a mechanism in place for basically scaling back or getting back to normal uh, once martial law is uh, declared or once civil liberties are suspended or the Constitution is suspended? Or is that totally left up to the discretion of the Caesar, the president? The way it's written is it's totally up to like you said, the Caesar. It's totally up to who's in charge. There's no scale-back moment where it says after certain... The only thing that exists was, I think it's in the Stafford Disaster Act, where it does allow, basically, military troops to help in the event of a disaster like a hurricane, but only for 10 days. And then after 10 days, basically, another edict has to be issued to give them another 10 days or more time to work on said disaster. But that's the only limiting factor that I ever found in any of these documents that say hey, this is supposed to end, even with a national emergency. I mean, the funny part with a national emergency is the National Emergency Act of 1976 was supposed to limit every national emergency to just one year, because obviously with emergency, it shouldn't go on forever. Yet a lot of the national emergencies were under, like the one from 9-11. Well, that's over a decade old, and it keeps getting renewed every year, and a lot of these do. That's why we're under so many of them, because they never end. They're like perpetual. And that's what the National Emergencies Act was supposed to do, was supposed to end that sort of behavior, but it didn't. It actually made it increase exponentially. So is there any mechanism for the legislative branch 
to institute any sort of checks and balances? Could they could they pass a law um, which would severely restrict the executive branch's power in this regard? Well, they shouldn't really have to. That's the sad part. What's happened is Congress has basically continually given this stuff over to the president to do. They basically said in the event of emergency, and again, this to a certain extent it makes sense, in the event of a real emergency like a nuclear war, you can't wait for Congress to get together, have a vote, have an argument, and figure out what's right and what's wrong. You have to act now. And the problem is is they just continually giving all this power over to the president, which basically puts them into like a dictatorship because they're not using their checks and balances like they should, and the Supreme Court hasn't done anything either to eliminate this sort of behavior. So you know, that's why we have so many executive orders and signing statements and these sort of things, which I also get into in the book, the executive order aspect of it all. That's given the president the power to act over and above his stated capacity. What happens to – now, I, I don't know exactly what the um, uh, what military officers – uh, you know, pledge to do when they assume their, their command. But I know, for example, you know, we know the president is sworn to uphold the Constitution. If individuals in the Pentagon, generals in the Pentagon, uh, I mean, are they not sworn to uphold the Constitution? And if so, how do they reconcile that when they're given an, an order from the president uh, to, uh, you know, carry out this this uh, this act. I mean, isn't that a, a kind of a conflict? Aren't they conflicted at that point? Do I do I uphold the Constitution or do I follow the orders from this new dictator? Well, that is going to be where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> That's going to be the telling tale. Is you're right because the military people are sworn to uphold the Constitution and defend it from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And if you, as a general, I would hope. You see a president overstepping his bounds and demanding you do something that is completely unconstitutional, even if the United States is in a state of emergency, even if there are riots, even if there is kind of an uprising, you would hope that that general and the generals, I should say, would really stick more to the Constitution than you know the demands of one crazy person who happens to be the president. Uh, so what we could see then, if the executive branch uh, attempted to invoke martial law, uh, we could see the we could see a civil war. We could see certain flag officers in the military and their and the people under their command siding with the Constitution, and certain military people and the, and those under their command siding with the president slash dictator. Yeah, it's good. Like I say, it's really set up for a legal coup. And if it gets to that point, then yeah, a shooting war between two factions within the United States. And again, you could throw on on top perhaps NATO or UN forces as well, <laughs> and then really see what happens. What do you um, what do you think people should do with this information, uh, uh, Brian? What's the takeaway then for for listeners that are concerned about this, as we all should be, obviously. I think obviously more activism, more political activism in any way you know each individual deems fit. I mean, one of the things too I bring up in the book, which we didn't really touch upon, which is fine, but you know, like the United States government tells you. We're not going to help you in the event of a national or of a disaster. We're not going to be there to help you. You should be able to survive on your own for at least three days without any sort of outside help. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to become a disaster prepper and stockpile a year's worth of food, but you know the government could make it better known that they're not going to help you and you need to be ready to help yourself. 
And yeah, that's I, another aspect of all of this. But I, I think, you know, again, it's just people need to be more aware and more active and more vocal about what's right and what's wrong and what's constitutional and what's not. Disaster government, national emergencies, continuity of government, and you, Brian Tui, thank you for this. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Not at all. My pleasure. Yeah, I think we all figured out long ago the government is not here to help, and we're pretty much on our own. Uh, but... Um, Good work for Brian Tui for bringing this to our attention. Thank you, Dan Ellison. Good to see you again, my old friend. Back next week, talking about the secret history of the reptilians with Scott Allen Roberts. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. Nothing concealed that won't be revealed. Nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Hang in there, mighty Aphrodite. I'm coming home. <laughs>